Hi, this is Brent White, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I preached the following message on November 5th, 2017 at Hampton United Methodist Church. And this begins a new four-part series on Paul's letter to the Philippians. This letter is all about being joyful, being grateful, being thankful, living lives with gratitude. And what, what better time to look at Philippians than in this season of thanksgiving. Paul is thankful to God. Why is he thankful? After all, his life's mission is to bring the gospel to the Gentiles throughout the known world, to, to, to plant churches, and he is now unable to do that because he has been sent to prison. He is in chains, and yet Paul describes three specific ways that the gospel is being advanced as a result of his chains. And the main point of this sermon is, in the same way, God has the power to transform disappointments, setbacks, failures in our own lives into something really good, good for us, good for others, good for God's kingdom. God is always doing that. So, that's what this sermon is about. I'll read the scripture now. The scripture is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. It's November, which as far as I'm concerned means one thing. It means that Christmas will soon be upon us, and I love this time of year. This year, during Thanksgiving, Advent, Christmas, sometime, I am going to be re-watching one of the greatest movies ever made, which, of course, is It's a Wonderful Life. 
Most of you have seen this holiday classic, and I often get criticized for spoiling movies when I talk about them. I'm not even going to issue a spoiler alert because, for heaven's sake, it's 70 years old. If you haven't seen it by now, that's your tough luck. (laughs) But you remember the basics of the story. George Bailey is an ambitious young man who has dreams of leaving Bedford Falls, the, the small town that he grew up in. Seeing the world, going to college, being a world-renowned architect or engineer, building things, accomplishing things, being successful, being rich, living the American dream. But through a series of unfortunate events and circumstances beyond George's control, he ends up stuck in Bedford Falls, running his late father's building and loan, watching his friends, even his little brother, achieve the kind of success that he himself always wanted to achieve. As if being married to Donna Reed wasn't good enough. I mean, what's this guy's problem? Regardless, toward the end of the movie, his incompetent uncle loses $8,000 of the building and loans money, and the police are out to get George for possible embezzlement. He's going to go to prison. His life is in ruins, or so it seems. So George contemplates suicide until an angel intervenes to save his life. The angel shows George one example after another of how other people's lives are better because of George's life and because of George's uh, business, the things that George did. George has blessed this town immensely, which becomes clear to him. George sees that every unlucky break, every setback, every disappointment, every perceived failure in his life has has played a role in blessing so many people. It's almost as if someone was working behind the scenes, pulling Strings, coordinating events, making things work out in a particular way. And although the movie doesn't come out and say this, we who are Christians would say, yes, by all means, that's God's providence. That's how God works in the world. Uh, There is someone uh, who is pulling the strings behind the scenes. There is someone who is causing things to work out in a particular way. While things were not going according to George's plans, they most assuredly were going according to God's plan. This is how God works in the world, at least for those of us who are in Christ. More than anything, this is what today's scripture is all about. Now, I've called this new four-part sermon series, um, Reasons to be Thankful, because Philippians is all about being thankful. It's about gratitude. It's about joy. It's the happiest book in the Bible, probably, at least in the New Testament. Um, Why am I preaching this now? Because I want us to be prepared uh, in a few weeks for the celebration of Thanksgiving, Uh, I want us to be prepared for making a a financial commitment as part of our our stewardship campaign, which you're going to hear more about next Sunday. But more than anything, I want you and me to be as happy as the Apostle Paul is, as is clear 
in his letter to the Philippians. I want us to have that same kind of impenetrable, indestructible, bulletproof joy that Paul has. And you may say to yourself, well, I'm not the apostle Paul. And that's right. You're not. His life was much more difficult than yours. It was filled with much more suffering, much more pain, much more loss than any of our lives. And yet his life, as is clear from this letter, is characterized by great joy. That's what I want in my life. Don't you? Most scholars believe that Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison in Rome during that two-year imprisonment that um, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, mentions at the end of Acts. If you recall from the book of Acts, Paul has been arrested by the Romans for preaching about a religion that wasn't on Rome's list of approved religions. They had a list. Now, the Romans tolerated Judaism. I mean, that was bad enough as far as they were concerned. But what is it with this weird new sect of Judaism, as they thought, this weird new sect called Christianity? We're, we, don't, we don't know about this at all. This sounds like trouble. So they arrested Paul. But Paul was a Roman citizen. And in Acts chapter 25, Paul appeals to Caesar, which means he had a legal right to have his trial before the emperor himself. So he's hauled off and shipped off to Rome. And that's where we see him at the end of the book of Acts. Um, Literally the last verse of the book of Acts um, says uh, that he was under house arrest and he was preaching and teaching and and sharing the gospel. It doesn't say what happens next, but we know from history that Paul was beheaded. He was, uh, the emperor Nero uh, had him executed. Anyway, um, Paul was under house arrest. And we think of house arrest today. We might think, I don't know, that someone might have a, an ankle monitor of some kind, or you know, they, they have some degree of freedom. Um, that sounds like a good thing, you know, if, you're, if your choice is, you know, going to uh, the, the sheriff's jail or, or being under house arrest, you probably want to be under house arrest. But it's a little different back in the first century. Paul himself had a Roman soldier who was literally chained to him 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He had no privacy. Among other things, he couldn't even go to the bathroom by himself because he had to be chained to one of these guards. These guards, we know from history, served like four-hour shifts, and then someone would come and relieve the guard, and the next person would, would, uh, would come. Um, so, on the other hand, that sounds bad, but on the other hand, think about what it was like for these guards. After all, they are chained to the most persuasive evangelist that the world has ever seen. So what do you think happened? <laughs> That's right. Paul shared the gospel with them and they were converted. And then they went and shared the gospel with others. Um, so that was a good thing. <laughs> um, the uh, uh, um, 
Paul wrote this letter, most, most scholars believe, uh, during that two-year period. Um, and uh, why did he write it? Because these Philippians at this church, they loved Paul. They supported his ministry financially. They were worried about him. After all, he's facing trial. He's facing uh, potential execution. And and how was he able to, to conduct his ministry? He's been called by God to go and share the gospel to all of these Gentiles all around the, the known world. And, and he's unable to do that if he's in prison. I mean, is he depressed about it? How is he handling this? This is a major setback in his life and in his his vocation. Is he disappointed? Is he discouraged? Who could blame him if he were? So these Philippians love Paul and they want to know how he's doing. So Paul writes in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He begins by saying, I want you to know, because what he what follows um, are some words that may surprise them. They're not expecting Paul to be doing as well as he is doing. They, they probably expect Paul to, to be, you know, sad, to be depressed, because after all, you know, being in prison would seem to, you know, have ruined his his ministry and his mission. But of course, he's not depressed at all. And Paul says that his mission is being fulfilled while he's in prison in three surprising ways. First, as I said a moment ago, he's able to share the gospel with these Roman soldiers. He says um, he's preaching the gospel throughout the whole imperial guard. The imperial guard is an elite unit of highly trained soldiers who worked and reported directly to Caesar himself. These were Caesar's men. They accompanied Caesar. They kept him safe. And Paul is preaching the gospel to them. They're being converted and they're going and preaching to others and they're witnessing to others and other people are being converted. And how do we know that they're so successful? Well, Paul gives us a clue at the end of this letter. If you turn to Philippians chapter four and look at verse 22, the next to last verse, you see Paul write the following. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Wait a second. Especially those of Caesar's household. How have members of Caesar's household become Christians? Through the evangelistic work of this imperial guard. They're the ones who have shared the gospel with members of Caesar's own household. So that's one really good result of Paul's imprisonment. Paul describes another good result in verse 14. And most of the brothers and sisters, that is Christians who live in Rome, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. They've seen Paul's example. They've seen his courage. They've seen his 
fearlessness at sharing the gospel no matter what the cost. They've seen Paul put his life on the line for the sake of the gospel, and they are inspired to do the same. They probably think, well, Paul isn't here to do it. We need to pick up the slack. We need to, we need to carry on his ministry because Paul himself is now unable to do it. So that's another good result of Paul's imprisonment. In verses 15 to 18, Paul says that some of the people in the church are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry out of selfish ambition. Scholars don't know much about who these people are. The Philippians obviously did know, but we don't know today. But they were likely people who believed that Paul was preaching a a deficient gospel or he wasn't doing it as well as they could do it. Um, and maybe they maybe they believed that uh, that he was in prison because God was judging him or punishing him. And and now it's time for them to show him how it's really done. Maybe they're jealous of the fact that so many people are are praising Paul for his faith, for his courage while he's in prison. And and they want some of that same admiration and fame that Paul has received or that they, they, they believe Paul has received. Um, either way, these opponents of Paul are still out there preaching Christ, regardless of their impure motives. And the message is still getting out. And as far as Paul is concerned, that's what's most important. People are hearing about Christ. More people are hearing about Christ. And, uh, and that's what matters. Um, I hate the prosperity gospel, you know, the health and wealth gospel. If you have the right kind of faith, God's going to bless you financially, materially, etc. And I have serious theological reservations with some of these prosperity televangelists like Benny Hinn, Creflo Dollar, Paul Crouch and others who appear to preach the gospel um, in part to line their own pockets with money. But in spite of these preachers' many deficiencies, I believe the Holy Spirit can use even them to reach people for Christ. I think that's what Paul is talking about here. It doesn't, in a sense, it doesn't really matter um, what their motives are or how impure they are. what, What matters is the Holy Spirit is working through their words and, and, he, and he can use uh, them, even them, to reach people. The gospel is advancing, not because of who these people are, but because of who God is. The gospel, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, has power. And that power is independent of the person who is preaching it. It has power because the Holy Spirit works through it. Now, this sermon series is called Reasons to be Thankful, and let's apply this scripture to our lives, and let's figure out how uh, we, what reasons it gives us to be thankful and grateful. Um, most of the time in our lives, when you really think about it, we find ourselves in situations over which we have very little control, just like Paul's situation in today's letter. Have you noticed how little control you have in your life? We can't control our boss. We can't control our spouse. We can't really even control our children. I mean, not after they grow up a little bit. They become their own people and suddenly 
We can't control them. We can't control our families, how they how they treat us, how we'd like for them to treat us. We can't control our friends. We can't control people we work with. We can't control church members. We can't control whether we get sick or not. Maybe we had some control over, you know, years ago where we could have made better uh, lifestyle choices, you know, healthier choices. But, but once you get sick, you know, there's not much you can, you can do about it. And besides that, we often inherit uh, diseases from our parents. We have no control over that. We can't control the economy. We can't control the weather. We can't control other drivers in Atlanta traffic. We can't control the behavior of criminals or terrorists. Given that we have so little control in our world, what are we supposed to do? Just accept fate stoically and say, whatever happens, I'm just going to endure this. Are we supposed to feel resentment that circumstances beyond our control have conspired to put us in our present situation? By the way, I've noticed a, a troubling trend in primetime TV. Maybe you've seen this too. You know, it's, it's very seldom that characters in, uh, on television ever make reference to God or God doing anything in their lives. But I've noticed that more than a few characters on TV have begun referring to the universe, right? The universe is doing something to them or for them. So, for example, two characters on TV fall in love with one another. And one of them will say something like, the universe is giving us a sign. We're meant to be together. The universe wants us to be married. Stuff like that. And I'm like... The universe. What kind, of, what kind of superstitious nonsense is that? We don't believe in the universe doing anything. Instead, we believe in the creator of the universe working all things for good for those who love God and who've been called according to his purpose. When we find ourselves in circumstances beyond our control, we can rejoice that God is in control. When we find that our own plans in life have have gone off the, off, the, off the rails, we can rejoice that God's plan is going perfectly. There, there was a, a Christian rock uh, pioneer and uh, gu- guitarist, one of the great guitarists, as far as I'm concerned, in the 70s named Phil Kagey. And he wrote a song back then called Disappointment. And the refrain of the song was like, Disappointment. His appointment. You just change one letter in disappointment and it becomes his appointment. I love that. I mean, sure, Paul could have been disappointed that his plans didn't work out, that he was in prison, that he was in chains. But disappointment is his appointment, God's appointment. Paul saw another plan at work, a better plan. God appointed him. This is this is this is tough. God appointed him to his chains. Brothers and sisters, follow Paul's example. When you're disappointed, instead of getting angry, instead of getting bitter, instead of getting resentful, stop and tell yourself, God has something else in store for me, something better for me as a result of this change in my plans.
I heard a preacher say recently that when we get depressed, it's because we are listening to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves. We listen to ourselves. Woe is me. I can't believe this is happening to me. I can't believe what other people are doing to me. This is the end of the world. I just want to curl up in a ball and die. Stop listening to yourself and talk to yourself. Remind yourself of what God's word tells us. Ultimately, you're not in control of what's happening in your life. And other people aren't ultimately in control of what's happening. But God is in control. He's got a purpose. He's got a plan. Tell yourself that. Believe that. And if, and if you feel like blaming God for the circumstances in which you find yourself, that's at least more spiritually healthy than blaming others or blaming yourself. God is big enough to take it. But over time, in hindsight, you may begin to see how God has used your setback, your disappointment for your good or for the good of others or for the good of God's kingdom or for the good of the world. But hold on a minute. Maybe you're thinking, Pastor Brent, you're you're talking about. God transforming our disappointments into something good. But we know that Paul's imprisonment led to his own execution. What's so good about that? Despite the the hope that he expresses in verse 26 that Paul would come and visit the Philippians, we know that that visit never takes place because Paul ends up dying. He never gets out of prison. He gets out of prison to go to trial, but then he gets executed. So how did Paul's disappointment work out for him? It worked out beautifully well. It worked out better than Paul could have ever dreamed. It far surpassed any of Paul's plans. Why do I say that? Because Paul went to heaven Because for him, living was Christ and dying was gain. Because he got to depart and to be with Christ, which he tells us in verse 23, is far better than being here. But as long as Paul is here, he says, to live is Christ. Every moment of life in this world is an opportunity to know Christ, to enjoy Christ, to glorify Christ, to live for Christ, to grow closer to Christ. So the question we have to ask ourselves, is Christ enough for us? Is Christ enough? Because you can always have Christ. You can't necessarily have the man or woman of your dreams. You can't necessarily have fame or popularity. You can't necessarily have the dream body that you want to have. You can't necessarily go to the college of your dreams. You can't necessarily have a lot of money. You can't necessarily have the dream job or the dream house or the dream car or the dream retirement. But you can have Christ. Is he enough for you? 
I mean, people talk and they joke, and I do too, about living the dream. I'm living the dream. And usually when I say it, I'm being sarcastic, you know, living. The truth is nobody really lives the dream. You know, they, and, and when they try to live the dream, they usually end up messing it up really badly. Just look at the tabloids when you check out at Publix or Kroger, and you'll see that people are always ruining the dream that they're trying to live out. Just look at these miserable celebrities. I mean, yet we all, every single one of us in this sanctuary has an opportunity to live the dream so long as we define that dream as knowing and loving and glorifying and enjoying and serving our Lord Jesus Christ and living with him forever and getting heaven as part of the deal. Is that not enough of a dream for us? Because brothers and sisters, if that's your dream, that dream is going to come true. If that's your dream, you can live that dream today and tomorrow and 10 years from now or whenever the Lord calls you home. Amen. Almighty God, we thank you for this dream, this dream of eternal life, which is far better than anything in this world. Our brother, Paul, whom we will meet someday, he tells us about that in this this letter to the Philippians. So we pray that you would bless us on this journey through this letter. Bless our lives. Show us how we can apply it to our lives. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on Sunday morning, I want you to know that you are welcome to come and worship with us at Hampton United Methodist Church. We're on West Main Street, right in downtown Hampton. We have two worship services. We have a 9 o'clock acoustic contemporary service and a more traditional service at 11. Hope to see you there.